My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. If you feel like you should be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. This is the audio version of the past week summaries brought to you by the gifted Shuhan He and Clay Smith. The first article for this week was titled An Outbreak of Severe Kawasaki-like Disease at the Italian Epicenter of the SARS-CoV-2 Epidemic, an observational cohort study out of The Lancet. Luckily, children have a much lower mortality rate from COVID-19, but that doesn't mean that they can't get affected, and there are certainly some things to think about still. One such thing to think about is the increased incidence of severe Kawasaki disease, for which we'll now get into the Italian experience from a large case series out of Italy using a before and after design, they found that a Kawasaki-like illness is occurring more often in this region after COVID-19, with about 10 cases per month versus the normal of 0.3 cases per month. Children who are affected are generally older at 7.5 years versus normally three years old. It has also been more severe after COVID-19 seeing 60% with cardiac involvement versus normally only 10.5%. Moreover, 50% had Kawasaki disease shock syndrome, which is essentially Kawasaki disease with hypotension, as well as a macrophage activation syndrome after COVID-19 compared to none before. Lastly, 80% needed steroids against only 16 beforehand. Two of the children from this study had symptoms of COVID, but tested negative, while the other age tested positive by PCR or antibody testing. You'll be pleased to hear that all of the cases responded well to the usual treatment of IVIG, aspirin, and of course, as I said, 80% got steroids. The CDC has newly classified this disease to be called multisystemic inflammatory syndrome in children. You can find a link to their case definition on our website. So, in a spoonful. An increased incidence of severe Kawasaki disease, now called multisystemic inflammatory syndrome in children, has been recognized in association with COVID-19 infection in children. The next article was titled, Anaphylaxis, a 2020 practice parameter update, systemic review, and grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, grade, analysis, out of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Essentially the mother of all allergic reactions, the one we all fear, and many of us carry around EpiPens just in case of, is anaphylaxis. This is common and dangerous. The lifetime prevalence is around 1-5%. to Thankfully though, it's rarely fatal, at numbers less than 1 in a million. The most common causes of anaphylaxis in adults are medications and stinging insects, while in children, it's foods and stinging insects. This paper is a review of the most important points on anaphylaxis, so we'll share a few with you here. A biphasic anaphylaxis pattern is probably a real thing, but a rare thing. To help decide who might need a longer observation period, it tend towards patients with severe anaphylaxis and those who need more than one dose of epinephrine, since these patients are at higher risk for a biphasic reaction. The critical cannot-miss intervention for anaphylaxis is epinephrine 
dosed at 0.01 milligram per kg of one in a thousand solution or one milligram per ml to a maximum dose of 0.5 milligrams in adults and 0.3 milligrams in children. This is a life-saving intervention. Use it first line and don't delay even in suspected cases. Antihistamines and glutocorticoids have a role before certain chemotherapy regimes and aeroallergen immunotherapies, but will have no effect on the likelihood of preventing a biphasic reaction. The authors of these guidelines advise against the routine use of those antihistamines and glutocorticoids for preventing radiocontrast-induced anaphylaxis. Keep your patients under observation until symptoms have fully resolved. When they're ready for discharge, they should get thorough teaching about anaphylaxis, a self-injectable epinephrine pen, and referral to an allergist for follow-up. All right, in a spoonful. So what's new in these guidelines compared to old guidelines is the max adult dose of epi has increased from 0.3 milligrams to 0.5 milligrams, and they emphasize that this should be given early. Biophasic reactions are more common in patients with severe anaphylaxis and those requiring more than one dose of epinephrine. As well, the use of antihistamines and steroids is de-emphasized, and they're not recommended prior to IV contrast. But keep in mind the evidence for most of these recommendations was fairly low. Now for the third article. Does N-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide improve the risk stratification of emergency department patients presenting with syncope? out of the annals of internal medicine. Syncope is back in the news again. I think that's an M&M joke. Last year, using high-sensitivity troponins and pro-BMP alone were found to have an independent association with mortality and serious adverse outcomes in patients with syncope. You're not likely to just use biomarkers alone, though. So how about we pair it with the Canadian syncope risk score and see how the two perform together? This was a multi-center prospective study of 1,400 patients with syncope who presented to the emergency department. This group found that adding pro-BMP to the Canadian syncope risk score identified 3% more people with serious adverse events, but it misclassified 2% without serious adverse events as not being low risk. Overall, there was no effect on diagnostic accuracy. All right, so in a spoonful, pro-BNP did not improve on the Canadian syncope risk score for stratifying adults in the emergency department with syncope. The next article was titled Remote E-Work in Distance Learning for Academic Medicine, Best Practices and Opportunities for the Future, out of the Journal of Graduate Medical Education. Shout out to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. If we've got any skeptics out there, this is a hot off-the-press summary because this summary was written in part by the lead author, Shuhan He. Welcome to COVID, everybody, where remote working has become the new norm, and many of our day-to-day -day activities that would normally require meeting with people are now done online. Your friends at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine have been using remote work since they started up. This actually poses some benefits, and moving away from the traditional system could benefit everybody. Here we have takeaways and best practices from the academic life and emergency medicine about using this technology to the fullest. We have a list of five areas where this offers advantages. First, improving project collaboration. Software makes collaboration efficient and quick. New versions of projects can sync immediately over the cloud and saves a lot of back and forth between people. Next are virtual meetings. These are easier to schedule, and no worries about travel time. It keeps people focused because there's a lot less side talk. And my own addition is that you don't need to wear pants. 
Third on the list is fostering digital mentorship. There are so many amazing people out there to learn from, and the digital world breaks down barriers, especially geographical ones, to everybody's benefit. Then forming virtual communities of practice. People with common interests can collaborate from anywhere in the globe. Finally, advancing online learning. Real-time streaming combined with the facility of using that same material asynchronously is much more efficient. Heck, this podcast is brought to you through a wonderful collaboration of virtual spaces. So this stuff works. All right, guys, in a spoonful, virtual and remote working has been forced on us by COVID-19, but it's probably here to stay. This paper is full of tips from people who have been at this for a while, and it's worth a read. Now, the last article for this week was titled Fluid Response Evaluation in Sepsis Hypotension and Shock, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the Journal Chest. Just like we know that too much oxygen is not good, too much fluids really isn't better. It causes a host of problems, including edema, increased ICU stays, longer ventilator dependence, and even higher mortality. So if too much fluids is bad, but we're definitely not going to give none at all, we need an accurate way to titrate our fluid levels. This was an industry-funded, multi-center, unblinded RCT, including emergency department patients with sepsis-associated hypotension and planned ICU admission. 83 patients were put in the intervention group, and 41 patients enrolled for usual care. So the intervention group followed the fresh treatment algorithm, which you can find on the blog, but that centers the decision to give fluids around a change in stroke volume after passive leg raise measured using a non-invasive thoracic electrical current device. This device was doing some interesting math based around current variability in systole versus diastole to accurately and non-invasively measure stroke volume. As the primary outcome of 72-hour fluid balance, the intervention group received significantly less fluids at negative 1.37 liters. Also interesting to see is that nearly all the secondary outcomes also favored the intervention group, including significantly fewer patients needing renal replacement therapy and mechanical ventilation, as well as more patients discharged home rather than to rehab. So this sounds pretty good, and personalization of medicine is a good initiative. No patient is the average patient, and one-size-fits-all approaches are headed for the trash. In a spoonful, basing IV fluid administration on stroke volume increases with passive leg raise compared with usual care resulted in a lower 72-hour fluid balance alongside several other outcomes. All right, guys, rapid review. What did we cover today? First, COVID-19 has been associated with severe Kawasaki disease, now called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So keep it on the differential. Next, epinephrine is the key drug for anaphylaxis. Give it early in suspected cases. Antihistamines and steroids can be given, but they're not very helpful and should not supersede epinephrine. Third, the Canadian syncope risk score was not helped by the addition of pro-BNP. Next, if we weren't in the digital age before, we're one step closer now. Some tips and best practices from academic life in emergency medicine on remote e-working. And lastly, titration of fluid administration to stroke volume increase with passive leg raise in patients with sepsis-associated hypertension showed a significantly lower fluid balance at 72 hours and an improvement in important outcomes. All right, that's it for this week, guys. Links to all the article summaries can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. So we're helping you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>